Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Bunker Show. You're joining us live and direct from our bunker deep beneath the sewers of Westminster, uh, where we look at uh, what's really going on in the world and beneath the, the stories that are out there to, to distract us. And joining us in the bunker this evening, we've got a couple of, of great guests. Um, but first of all, the Bunker Show crew and our one and only ray of sunshine. Here's Helen. Good evening, everyone. Really, really looking forward to tonight's show with our lovely guests. Um, and don't forget to come into the chat room, join us, uh, interact with the show. I'll be in there under the name Big Silly Grin. So come and talk to us. And also with us in the bunker, as always, here's Jimmy. Well, if Helen's the only ray of sunshine in the bunker, then I must be the dark sluice of, um, of uh, evil or something. I don't know, but it's nice to be down here, guys. <laughs> well, if you want to play devil's advocate, Jimmy, that's always welcome. Uh, I have the great pleasure to, to welcome Joel and Coriander. Uh, Joel Shepherd, uh, Coriander Shepherd, uh, welcome to the bunker. Thanks ever so much. Hey, guys, it's brilliant to be here. Thank you very much. Now... Joel, I, I know very well. I've had the pleasure of making over a hundred films uh, with him uh, on all kinds of subjects, um, ranging from some of the very, very local to some of the big national issues. Um, Joel, how did you actually get started doing what you're doing and how would you kind of describe what you do? Yeah, it must be way over a hundred or about that. I think when we met was about 2011, at the end of 2011, when yeah, the Occupy movement started locally. Was it October 2011? Yes. Yeah, and um, we met there at Occupy Worthing and decided to start a film group. So, you know, me, you, Helen, we went out to um, the high street and just started making films about kind of the Occupy movement and then... Yeah, and then sort of sort of moved on from there to sort of more issues that we wanted to go on. I think we've been into every kind of establishment in Worthing, like the police station, the town hall, um, the parking uh, shop, sort of, you know, all with a camera every time. I don't think many people have done that in Worthing, let alone maybe even on a national scale. Yeah, one of the things that we, we started doing was um, talking to people in the street and uh, the uh, Vox Pops, effectively. And uh, uh, how did you find the, the, what you do uh, and that engagement with, with people on the street um, sort of gave, gave a direction to, um, to sort of how, how, how your, your you know, pro-activist yeah. uh, filmmaking has, has, has developed? Uh, I think the Vox Pops are brilliant because you're asking people open questions getting sort of each individual's open opinion and then you edit it and put all these opinions together and you're seeing that a lot of them, even though they sound a bit different, they're pretty much you know, unanimous in, in some ways and very kind of interesting when you're talking about issues that affect them locally. So do you, do you find it was a, a good way to narrow down the, the points of discussion, the, the ways in which... Um, you, you actually find what, what, what is uh, on people's minds and, and where the actual points of disagreement are rather than uh, just the rhetoric and the, the, the name-calling that, that you sometimes get when you don't really give chance for people to, to, to feel part of that dialogue. 
yeah, it gives much more of a, it kind of drove, it drove where we were going, didn't it? So sort of, we asked the questions and then we were kind of public servants in a, in a journalistic fashion. Um, prior to, hey, hey man, how's it going? Hey man, it's going good. Cool. Um, prior to your, to, to your work with um, Fab and the, the, the Occupy movement, did, did you see yourself taking like a commercial path with, with the media work you were doing or what, did, when did you deviate from, from, from any ideas of going mainstream? Uh, pretty much straight away, I think. <laughs> there was never going to go work for the film industry, though that's what they kind of teach you at college and university. But, um, yeah, I'd always found activism interesting, but never till I met Fab at Occupy and got things rolling there. And I has think any, has any, putting in, in stuff, you run into a lot of authority figures. So you kind of, I don't know, had that experience with dealing with confrontations in the street and, I don't know, capturing what people are doing. Um, do, you think that's, do you think that's kind of like a failure in the, in the way media is taught in schools? Yeah, definitely, because, again, with the Vox Pops, you're putting them on YouTube, which is a completely open source website, and anyone can go on it, anyone can comment, and all the people you're filming are going to go on there, and all the people that have been filmed are going to share it with their friends, and chat about it on social media and you know that's kind of where media should be i think but in a lot of ways it's not yeah but in a way it's kind of evolving in, uh, along that path definitely and in, in some of the ways in which make that more engaging i mean sometimes we uh i, I think we use signs on occasions sometimes we'd use megaphones um and sometimes, uh, I guess, different forms of street theatre. And how, how did you think those, those, those sort of things can fit in with that dynamic? Yeah, and do you remember when we did, uh, were you there when we did Democracy in the Street? Yeah, now that was a, 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 an, interesting, an interesting one. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, we got, um, we used a bit of, all our techniques, we got some signage out, did, um, and the megaphones. We had a big democracy sign. On one side, we had someone with the yes, and on the other side, we had someone with the no. We'd get the megaphone, ask the question, and then we'd try and get people in the street uh, to go under the yes and no, and then answer their questions through the megaphone and kind of keep that circus going and film that all. But the only people that did engage with that were people that were maybe over 50 and under 10. Everyone else was shopping. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, it can often be hard to break that sort of self-consciousness that, that, that yeah. people have, which is often the, the, the great thing with a, uh, a free hug sign or a, a free tea and conversation sign if you've got uh, some nearby tea facilities. Um, because that way that encourages people to, to, to engage. And when people engage and also have a voice, that can be quite a powerful dynamic to, uh, to get things changed. Um, and it, it, in terms of that, I know you, you mentioned that you've uh, uh, went to police stations and we've, we've, we've done that a few times with uh, raising awareness of Section 30. We also went to, to the Job Centre and uh, filmed about Job Centre Plus. Um, the, the, 
the, the people that, that were there and work fair and also a, a, a number of other things uh, such as car parking which were all sort of triggered by um, vox pops in, in the street uh, and also local schools becoming academies. So how do you think those things can kind of be a, a, a catalyst to, to move forward sort of your, your local community? Yeah, I think if you raise topics in your community that are going to be of interest to the people but aren't going to have a platform to be shouted on, then getting a camera and a microphone and a few people uh, scheming an idea of what questions to ask and how to frame it to show up and um, get involved and, you know, shine a light on that topic that isn't being discussed but clearly should be. Yeah, and sometimes when, when you throw that out there, I know uh, neither you or I uh, were driving at the time, um, but one thing that came up was the local car parking situation. And from there, uh, we went on and interviewed some of the, the local councillors um, and also uh, did that because uh, and showed them, sorry, the Vox Pops that we'd taken on the street. Um, and eventually, um, there was a local petition and it was debated in the, in the council chambers. And that all originally came from uh, one box pop and and people in the street, so you know how do, how do you think that progression can work for people to to raise awareness of different different subjects in their community with a camera? Well, I think you could you could even build a step by step guide, and maybe it's something to actually that I should consider as a proactivist kind of guide is find the problem on the street, film the problem, and ask dozens of people, and then what do we need for this? Um, a thousand signatures, I think, to be discussed. That's right. So you can go from one person to a few dozen and put it online and get a thousand within weeks and then get that thing changed. And it's a really interesting style of um, journalism because you're not having any agenda. You're there to collect other people's agenda and you, you're, you're not persuaded either way. You're, you're literally asking the people and then playing it back to the people that need to hear it. Yeah, it's a really weird... <laughs> It's a really weird form of media. Yeah, there's no spin on it, and that's not, not how we're taught, but that's that actually what's real, isn't it? That's how to get the message clear to people. Yeah, the free hugs definitely worked. One of the yeah, best. that works well too. <laughs> that's the difference. Every time there was a free hug sign there, you get half the amount of people. And, and of course, when you're there to engage with with people, um, because you 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 really just want to have the, the the litmus test. Sometimes those people can can make you think of things that you 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 hadn't thought of before. Um, and I, I I know we used quite a, a a simple method a lot of the time of asking one uh, very open, engaging question. Um, such as what do you think could, could be improved in the town? Uh, what, what would you most like to see in the coming year? Um, and then we'd ask uh, questions more about maybe what's happening in the local community, what could be improved in the local economy, what you could do for, for young people if they're out of work, um, and, and things like that, that uh, or to, to, to improve their education. 
um, and and then you can you can find um, I think quite a, a way in which people will engage um, if you if you 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 make it um, an easy thing to engage with. Definitely, and a lot of people always ask for street music. <laughs> That's Coriander's forte, isn't it, Coriander? Exactly. And Possibly. I think, I think we might have had a few open mic sessions. Because in- uh, your your activism within your your um, community, Coriander, was a lot of promotion for young artists, musicians, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I just I don't think they get the recognition or the stage to really perform and a platform to be on to get recognised in the first place. And so I just wanted to make a, you know. Anything that I did that was community, um, I tried to get the music involved there. And uh, when I studied at Northbrook, I studied um, music and events management for a year. And that was only in 2013-14. And um, as much embarrassment as that was to my daughter, who was also studying there at the same time doing music. And it's in fact, you know, due to my children, that I ended up doing this course. Um, because my oldest two especially are very musical um, and I was already managing my daughter's band, the Lovettes, and then the more I was doing for them, I felt that actually there were loads of other children and young people in college and schools that had a really great talent and weren't being heard. And music is one of those subjects at school that isn't really at the forefront. It's mainly academics that they, uh, you know, they get the awards for and things like that. And I wanted it to be recognised. And so I just, whenever I did anything. Um, I tried to make sure that I was involving uh, bands and individuals from the local community, really. And you began your own project, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think Worthing had never seen this many local young artists playing in the clubs and playing in the bars and playing on the streets as when you were doing that. That was absolutely fantastic. It was really good fun. And, um, you know, I had the great chance of uh, running the open mic in the town centre once a month which was open air um, on the day, on market day. So there was a great footfall through the town and, you know, the hustle and bustle of everything. You didn't have to stand around and watch the music, but it was sort of background music. But sometimes you'd get a massive crowd of a few hundred people watching someone that had never sung in front of someone before. And, you know, the buzz that they got off of it as well, uh, you know, were crying and things like that. It's just, you know, just normal people getting up there at an open mic and just having the chance um, to sing to their local community and then they've gone on to do local pubs and things like that where I just put them in touch with people and uh, yeah lots of different projects. Yeah I think one of the most impressive um, uh, things about the, your approach to, to to what you do is uh, y- you provide a platform which is you know right there really empowering but it, it, you imbue everything with a professionalism that is really um, helpful for young and up-and-comers um do you think that there is you know like a uh, uh an an easy way for um for up-and-coming young artists to, to to get access to professional um help i don't know i mean some obviously are at college where they get sort of um visiting guests and things um stars that can come and give them some advice like that but i think the best thing for them is to get out in their local community to start with and get a bit of a backing behind them, you know, and there's some great Worthing bands that have, uh, you know, had some great gigs and had some really good turnouts, and, yes, it was just great fun. And, I mean, when I... 
Sorry, I was going to say it must be an, an invaluable experience as well for the band uh, to, to dip their toes in the water and see how they, they get along with the feedback of actually doing something and, and making uh, an environment where it's easy uh, or, or easier for uh, people to um, take their energy and their enthusiasm and, and find an outlet for it and a way of expressing it and sharing it with the community at large. Definitely. It's about opening people's minds as well. You go to a lot of the bars and they're like, oh, well, if they haven't played here before or they haven't played there, then I'm not really interested. So it's all about bringing them around to sort of opening their minds to thinking about having new artists in there. Well, I was sending them videos, sending the, the musicians videos to um, radio shows and things like that. Just getting them some airplay and, you know, just generally out there. Um, and, you know, when I did the Ox Jam, which was uh, last October... Uh, that was with Jack Mitrovich. And, I mean, we had a great time. We used, I think, 32 bands that I'd sort of provided and worked with and then 20 other bands that were local as well from Brighton to Littlehampton area. And we just did 12 hours um, of music. And it was amazing. The turnout was great. And it was just such great fun and such a good day for the whole community. That was taking over five venues and uh, the musicians were amazing to give up their time. It all ran really smoothly. And I, I believe they've just done it again. Jack Mitrovich and I think Greg Vernon have just done it again last weekend. So, so uh, that's really good to hear. Yeah, it's great to have that kind of momentum that uh, you're able to build with with those kind of projects and those kind of uh, events that... Uh, that, that you can do if, if you put your mind to it and uh, you, you, you build the opportunities for people to have. Uh, and in, in terms of that, I know last year um, you had the opportunity to uh, get hold of a, a stage for a few hours. Yeah, that um, due to you, wasn't it, and your hard work there, but um, it was brilliant. Well, it was also off the back of a, a group that, that you and Joel have worked very hard with, who, who we'll talk about in a little while, called Jumpstart Initiative. But uh, we decided to do a, a live and, and direct event, uh, and we had a number of, of different bands who, who came on. And in between, while the bands were doing their, their stuff, we were very lucky to get the town crier to come along. And... Uh, uh, a few of us um, had an event there where we were able to, uh, it was called Raw, actually. Would you like to tell a little bit about Raw? Yeah, I'm going to hand it to Joel to start with, because uh, obviously he's part of Jumpstart. And I worked I worked alongside and covered the music side of things, um, providing equipment and things like that and some of the artists. But the whole idea, you know, was, was definitely a Jumpstart thing to start with. Yeah, that came about quite quickly. That was, we wanted to set up something for the World of Words Festival for, yeah, the World of Words Festival. Um, and it's going to be a speaker's corner. And we were going to do something political. We thought, you know, we do all that a lot of the time. So let's do something with a bit of hip hop, uh, street dance um, and all sorts of performances. So we went into Northbrook, did a few bits on their radio, uh, got all the bands interested um, and set that up. And we even got Stacey from Loka uh, over to do some um, sort of unique chore part that they do there. And they were doing that with the kids. And it just turned into this massive event. 
Uh, yeah, a really great community event. Again, ev- for all ages, we had a really great crowd there and the weather was kind to us as well. So that was all good. Fantastic day. It was such a big success. And Joe, could you tell us a little bit about um, Raw If You Like This Law and where that came from? Uh, yeah, I'm having a struggle, a bit of brain fog remembering that. That was, um, yeah, we'd read out... Um, we what we did at Speakers Club. It was the Worthing Charter, wasn't it, Joel? Yeah, the Worthing Charter. Um, where we get people to write a new law. So just like lawyers and politicians do, is write laws and then put them into existence. We would get people to write their own laws and then read them out at Speaker's Corner and then whoever liked it would roar as loud as they could. And then we put it into existence in the Worthing Charter. And we got um, the ex-mayor of Worthing and the town crier of Worthing um, to back that, which was quite amazing. Yeah, Bob, Bob Smitherman was great that day, wasn't he? So he was can, really can you guys remember any of the um, any of the proposed uh, amendments to the charter? Uh, to ban dog poo. <laughs> ban television was one, I think. Ban television. Every flat block and. Every flat block in Worthing should have Wi-Fi. Shared Wi-Fi, yeah. So they that, was, that was a good idea, and I can see that working. Yeah, I think there was, there was some labelling on food as well, and uh, um, there might have been ice cream as well. Uh, yeah, there were, there were a few silly ones, but mostly good ones, and they were mostly community-based, I think. When you looked at it, there was a community-based idea behind it, which was really great. And that's what we, you were trying to prompt people with, wasn't it? Is what would you like? Rather than yeah. being told what the community are, what actually would work for, for a community. And get, yeah. it's again like going straight to the people and asking them. Yeah, you give a few examples and then they're off. Yeah, I know one uh, that was there, well, actually a number that were there in terms of, of promoting art and people in the community actually wanting to, to, to participate with uh, you know, actual local local projects. And also part of the, the filmmaking side, I guess, with uh, YouTube and putting it out there as well, is... Um, being able to show people exactly what is going on in their community. Um, so do you think that that helps to build the community dialogue as, uh, as well as sort of uh, encourage people to express their art? Yeah, I think the more you put on YouTube and social media, once you've got a bit of uh, audience, then the more you put up, the more people are going to be like, oh, cool, that's what I went to that day, or, oh, I missed that. When's the next thing going to happen? And maybe I... Oh. Yeah, especially if you have the opportunity to, to give people fun or to give people an opportunity to have fun. Uh, and often when the more people are sitting down, chalking uh, on the promenade, then it encourages more people to, to, to engage and do that uh, without feeling so self-conscious. Uh, <laughs> To say when often people like to, to, to be able to let that inner child part of themselves out and have a little fun with other people doing the same. Yeah, well, it's funny how infectious it, it gets to be, isn't it? Uh, I, I, yeah, the I, whole family can become involved, and that's the thing. So many things now section bits of the society off, and when you do things like that, it can pull everyone together, you know. 
And that's that's what's so great, and it's fun. And um, yeah, and and it, I I think when people have fun, they generally come back. It, it seems a little bit like a, a, a human gravity. Um, but sometimes there, there, there can also be some of the sort of more serious issues that affect people's lives. Um, and we, we, we mentioned car parking a little earlier um, with that. Another thing is also um, schools. A number of schools have been turned into um, academies. I know you made uh, some, some films on that to document what, what the local community yeah, that was something that brought the whole community together because that was another one Bob Smithen was in. Uh, parents, children. Um, yeah, that brought everyone together. And sort of yeah. just turning schools into businesses where businesses can write the education for... And you did a lot of work around that, didn't you, Coriander, with the schools because you've had a big struggle with the think, education system in this country. Uh, I had a personal sort of interest in that because two of my children were currently at that school and... My youngest one at the time was in year nine and um, was on the SEN register. And there, there was, it was just the way the money was going to be spent and the transparency in the whole school and the system and everything. I, I personally didn't trust the school to be in charge of the funds that would be putting into the future education of my children and others, especially children on the SEN register, because then they could actually choose who they accepted into the school and it says, oh, if there's an issue and they don't accept a child, um, you can go to a tribunal. However, when you look into the history of this, nobody had won against us, you know, against an academy at a tribunal. They just sent them to a different school. So it was an unrealistic offer. Absolutely. And I just wanted to make sure that the help was going to be there for my son for the rest of his school term there. And I mean, unfortunately, it became an academy, which was you know, more than likely going to happen. But we had to say something. We had to put up a fight and things did get done. Um, and the head teacher resigned. Uh, and, you know, there was there was quite a lot going on there that shouldn't have been going on. And I think now they realise that us parents can actually kick up a fuss and we will stand up for the rights of our children. And although not that many appeared at certain meetings and things like that, things still got changed. And unfortunately for my son, he didn't get the help that he required in the later years. They took away his help when he reached GCSE age. And so he didn't finish at that school, um, as I believe many others didn't as well. And so, like I say, I don't regret doing what I did. I stood up for what I believed in. And, you know, I think it's a shame the way uh, schools are being turned into academies now, really. And especially when you speak to uh, MPs and things, and they're not really clued up on what they're actually the ideas they're selling to people. And you, you, you've had um, you've had a lot of experience with the education system in this country, haven't you? I have. I mean, I've got five children, ranging from eighteen um, down to seven, and my three boys that are in the middle, um, they all suffer with Asperger's, and two of them also with ADHD. And they've had a struggle at school. Not, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not blaming the school. It's, it's a very difficult situation for them to be in as well with 30 children in a class and one teacher and maybe a helper a couple of hours a day or something. However, these children are meant to fit into a system that doesn't work for them. They're highly sensitive, um, very anxious, and 
they're just made to struggle. And I felt like I was doing the worst thing possible, taking my child to school every morning, who was really telling me that this wasn't the place for them. And I, I did. I had many meetings with social services, the education welfare officers, and I, I stood my ground, but I still took my child to school. However, when it got to the point with my uh, youngest son that he um, was refusing to go to school, and I, I totally believe he was so anxious, he was begging me, please don't send me there, you know, and they weren't doing, they weren't fulfilling any of the promises they made when, when they said that he would be able to cope in this school system. They said that there would be transition help and, you know, someone to meet him in the mornings. And again, I understand it's difficult to provide in, you know, with the funding to the education um, department. However, there was nowhere else for my child to go unless I went private. And I, as a parent, couldn't afford to do that either. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've had many dealings with, with schools some positive but mostly negative with regards to the amount of help they put in for these children and yeah we i mean we've moved to spain and we've had such an overwhelming experience so far they've been in school for five weeks and so many are going to look at this and think oh well it's only five weeks they haven't really had a chance to know what it's like there but we've been here since june and we came over so that they could meet friends and socialise first and then join the school where they would know people um, when they started. And it's been fantastic. They're in a Spanish-speaking school. Uh, we're, we're lucky. We chose a village, a small village, and there's only eight children or to ten children maximum in a class. And there are only one class per year. So don't get me wrong. That's I mean, that's really, really lucky. And it's partly on us choosing where we were as well. It's a very small village with only 2,000 inhabitants and uh, it's, it's great. My children have a life here that they didn't have back home. They're, they're growing in confidence. They have independence. Um, yeah, we're loving it. Yeah, and so, so I guess that makes for a very different environment for all of you compared with how it was over here when you were trying to get them into a school they didn't yeah. want to go to. Exactly. And they and weren't, I mean, weren't actually, learning from. At the end, Holby had uh, only sort of maybe 65% attendance and we were being called into the school saying, you know, if you don't get him here, you're going to get this um, fine from here. And yeah, we got a letter saying that we were getting a £100 fine and I was doing my job, which they told me was to get him into school. And then they were phoning me halfway on my way home saying, we're just letting you know he's gone out of the school gates and he's on his way home. He's following you. And this is a child that, that was eight years old, just eight years old, and he got out of the school. And, you know... So uh, there were very frightening issues about whether he was being properly um, absolutely. supervised. Absolutely. And there are many other children. And I would say the ratio is there are probably three children in most classes. You know, so sort of 10% of children need that additional care, really. And they say that children are to be treated as individuals. And I don't think with 30 children in a class and one teacher, that can actually take place. I'm really pleased that you've managed to get them somewhere now where they can thrive. I'm just going to flip to Joel for a minute because I've got a question from the chat room. Um, Joel, uh, what, um, what was your experience last year at November 5th uh, for the Million Man Mask? We'd oh, like wow, yeah. That was quite an experience, and you've been, you managed to fund me that. 
thank you again for that. Cause yeah, I'll... I was laid out poorly, wasn't I? And had planned to go and you yeah. weren't able to get there because of funds. So we decided to do a joint effort as long as you made a great movie, which you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was awesome, yeah. And the So what was it like being there? It was just very busy. There must have been six or 8,000 people there. Kind of, I don't know, maybe 5% there to cause trouble at the protest. But the march went all over London it went to the BBC where you know they were demanding the BBC to kind of report what the activists were talking about and there was lots of fireworks going off so it's quite good fun a few police kind of got hit by fireworks but then again the police were kind of hitting people so it's you know a bit fair um but yeah that was an awesome day I hope. Uh, an atmosphere of uh, dissatisfied citizens by the sounds of things. Yeah, but it was a, just a great culmination of activists rather than, you know, there's so many different types of activists, but that kind of might brings all of them together. And it's that kind of something that's quite different. Like you say, most of them were peaceful. Yeah, most of them were peaceful. Was just a, the, the only ones that were unpeaceful were just flipping over bins. So it's like, oh, on the scale of things, it was... So at showing anger. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great event. Yeah, and and then me and Al were just walking by them and a few people would just say, oh, that guy is not cool. And Did you stop. say the police are there trying to pacify the situation? Would you say that's the role they're attempting there? The, yeah, the police or are, really... are they, uh, are they more Are they aggressive or are they peaceful in their approach to the activists? Completely aggressive. They were like, you know, on a rugby scrum where everyone runs, or like American football where they run 10 yards. Every time you're walking up the street, they run 10 yards in full riot gear and then they stand next to you and they they just look like they're ready to hit you, but they're not. And I'd It's quite past, intimidating. Yeah, but then I'd walk past them maybe, I don't know, a foot or two away from their faces, run past them with the camera and film it in their faces and they just kind of have that realisation like, ah, what are we doing here? And they kind of just, you know, they weren't that scary. They were just kind of... And I'm thinking it, it, you know, it it makes it a whole lot harder to have a peaceful protest with that kind of presence. Yeah. You know, causing people to feel anxious and intimidated and getting the emotions running high on people. Yeah, without the police, it would be more of a march, which is what it's meant to be. It would just be, you know, walking around with signs and voicing your opinion rather than having to let fight for your own voice. And the occasional firework as well, I, I, I would have thought, on November the 5th. Um, how do you think that the camera works in, in being um, that equaliser that you were talking about in, in terms of um, the, the police officers who are there? Because um, I, I, I know you've, you've uh, filmed quite a number of, of different uh, um, places and times where, where people have been striving to get their voices heard in one form of protest or another. So how do you think the camera works in terms of uh, engaging with uh, official power or or people in uniforms? It's great. It's like a mediating tool completely. And at Bolcom it was especially great because like um, November the 5th, you'd have rows and rows of police marching and, you know, if they're going to push anyone about and there's a camera, then they're going to think twice and um, yeah, it just gives people the police know they're on camera if they're wise enough, they know it could be live streamed or it's going to be 
Disgusting. And you filmed quite a few times, um, including that night, the effect it has on a policeman when they realise you're stood there with a the camera, don't you? Yeah. You've seen the, the sort of change, they, they stop the, the aggression and, and change their behaviour or try and hide their faces, I've seen on some of your films as well. Yeah, it does that with people as well. When you're doing box walks in the street, I remember we were filming outside Poundland and that guy came up and we were filming um, Adam asking for the CEO uh, Poundland to come out and then these guys came out with their kids and they were coming up to me and they were like oh you're a paedophile why are you filming here and they try and swipe the camera out of my hand and they and Sarah was there and they booted the, the phone out yes Sarah's in the chat room and now yes they, they kicked her camera out of her hand that day didn't they but, you know when we were doing a piece of activism that we were filming so yeah and afterwards they did kind of you know they argued away but it's just like the policeman when you put a camera in their hand in their face they're gonna get angry first and then realize and then leave or you know talk at, at all the big events that you've attended have you noticed um more and more other people you know other guys doing exactly the same thing that you're doing um in a way yeah there's lots of people doing the same thing some people do get aggressive with the camera because they think they're invincible that's the only downside is when you've got a camera and you can abuse police officers because you've got a camera. That's the only downside I've seen. But there are a lot of people that don't. I was just going to say a special talent of yours, Joe, is the opposite. That you're there with your camera and they don't notice you for a certain amount of time because you, yeah. don't, make your, you don't demand a presence. You're just observing. And, and, and that's one of your, your beautiful skills that I've seen at work many a time. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, so... It's a whole no agenda thing, isn't it? Yeah, or giving them eye contact when you're holding the camera like two foot down by your waist and they just look at you and they talk and then they don't realise for 10 minutes that they're being filmed. Even though the camera's not really that small, it's quite amazing where people's attention goes if you just kind of draw them to your eye contact. That definitely works. Have you ever had any one-on-one um, -on -one engagement with the police? No, I don't think so. Would you like to? <laughs> Depends what they were like. <laughs> Depends what we were talking about. No, I don't know. Uh, it can be quite intimidating when you're dealing with um, officials and uh, you know sometimes police. But we've also uh, spent some time in in the local community, uh, as I said, with car parking. When people were saying, "Well, the councillors should do something," we went and spoke to some of the the councillors, and we've also attended some of the public question time and filmed those because some people are interested in local issues but they don't have the opportunity to go to a local council meeting uh, and if people are asking pertinent questions then um, you know how, how have you seen that develop over uh, the last four years in terms of um, from the initial receptions from from you know the the, the range of councillors to, to to the ways in which they they engage after they see that you're going to consistently communicate with uh, the people of the town. Uh, the councillors are great. They love to have their own platform, which I guess councillors don't really get their own platform unless they do it themselves or hire someone to do it, and they don't really have much of a wage. So I guess unless they're getting some free publicity that is engaging, they kind of just kind of do their own thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've also been 
uh, quite fortunate. We we uh, managed to, to do a meet the candidate series where we asked as many as as they could to come and uh, talk to the camera and a- answer a few questions. And uh, we also managed to, to to get a couple of local politicians and uh, a, an ex commercial airline pilot, an ex police officer, uh, to join us for a round table in in, in after dusk. And so, how do you think? those kind of things or you know maybe maybe uh, tell us a little bit about them and and how you think that they can help people be be proactive the after dusk was great because that got a lot of people from different backgrounds uh, like professional backgrounds like the ex um yan as well as an ex-terrorist um was he worked in the airline ex-anti-terrorist uh, police officer not an ex-terrorist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but having them all together and talking about subjects that maybe they would talk with their friends but not with other professionals is a really great platform to have and kind of push the conversation forward. And then I think we had a few councillors or, yeah. yeah. Two ex-mayors of, of, of the, the, the nearest two towns, yeah. And... You know, it, it, some of those are uh, they're available on your YouTube channel, which is uh, True Media, uh, spelt T R U W Media, uh, and that's on uh, YouTube. And you also have a website as well, which is TrueMedia.com, spelt T R U W M E D I A, as well as your your Facebook group. But would you like to tell us about? exactly what you're up to with your, your latest project because that sounds very interesting indeed yeah, I'm just going to jump in and say don't forget if you want to play your clip we need to do that as well yeah definitely we can play that just after we've explained after we give a little round up of what it is we have two um, minutes left so you, you can do what you like with it excellent okay well um, our new project with True Media is Up Close and Personal with Cannabis Oil um, so luckily we've been able to get this opportunity with Dark City Radio and Dark City Compassion Club to come and film with them, tell their story and meet the people that are treating themselves with cannabis oil um, effectively. And then we're going to create a blog, an ongoing blog, um, to sort of document their process and then also make a documentary about the whole, the whole shebang. Okay, so so why that project? Did you just hear about the great work that uh, the Compassion Club is doing, or um... we, did, we did hear about the great work as well over here? It's um, you know, there's a few clubs over here, and um, the laws are a little bit different. But a lot of people are travelling over here to treat themselves with the cannabis oil, and we just wanted to cover it and make people realise, like open people's eyes, I guess, to realize, to know that it's not the only thing, uh, chemo is not the only treatment, and we're not anti-chemo, but we, we think that people should know that, you know, cannabis oil can work alongside, and indeed, on its own, with other, like, nutrients and things to go with it, and very strict diet and stuff, um, but it's a really good form of healing, and yeah, we're just, we're following people on their journeys. I was just going to say, we 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 discussed a little bit last week, and um, I think it's um, a case of not being against any treatment, but having having laws that restrict other treatments from being spoken about or advertised is is too much. 
it seems crazy when there's, you know, there's all this in the news at the moment about it helping children with epilepsy and things like that. Why is it not available to these people? Why do they have to travel and do things undercover and feel bad about it? And, you know, why is there so much fear of this cannabis oil? And that's what we want to, you know, to try and disappear. So it's just everyday people who have had a diagnosis. Um, the ones that we've filmed so far have had a diagnosis of cancer, and you know they've been treating themselves for a few months now. And we're going to sort of listen to a clip in a minute, and that's uh, a lady called Stevie who we've met, and uh, we'll be following her story. Have we lost you, Coriander? I think we just lost Coriander a moment. So uh, it, it's interesting to hear about giving people different options with uh, healthcare um, that, that maybe aren't, aren't so conventional. Uh, I think if, uh, if the Dark City magicians are already in the back room, if you can um, play the, the, the clip of Stevie talking about her treatment, please. So I've now gone back from Hello. Spain to England for a couple of days to visit my son at the beginning of August last year. And um, I was sitting on the sofa watching TV and I fainted. And when I came round from that, he was very distressed, which surprised me. And he said to me that while I'd been fainted, unconscious, he kept saying, um, that I had like had a, some sort of a fit, and I'm saying, "Don't be stupid." When anybody faints, you you know you lose control. So I've gone, "Don't be stupid. I'm fine. Make me a cup of tea," and carried on watching TV. And I've done it again. So I've gone bang again. And he said that this time I stayed out longer, and it was really funny actually, because when I woke up, he was crying. That wasn't funny, but all I could. See just smell this, and he put a, a bag of McCain's frozen steak chips on my head, <laughs> because that's what we do when somebody fakes, apparently. Anyway, I promised him that if I did it again, I would go to hospital. So anyway, I've gone to sleep that night perfectly fine, I've gone out the next day, met my mum, had lunch, said to her that... I'd felt faint twice and it was a bit weird and that was that. Anyway, I've gone back to my son's flat, made myself a cup of tea and I felt faint again. So I probably should have called an ambulance, but I didn't, I called a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> so they did all the heart tests and all the tests and all the yada yada. But they wanted to give me um, a scan. They're discharging me. On and uh, I'm sitting there, and this young boy, who was the junior doctor, showed up, draws the curtain, and says, uh, I'm really sorry to tell you, but you've got lung cancer. And I'm like, you're talking to me? Yeah, just like that. And you're getting yeah. ready to go home. I'm there, I'm ready to go. Yeah. I'm just, you know, my handbag ready to go. And uh, he said, um, you know, the scan reveals that you've got a tumour in your right lung. My family are saying, please, please, you have to have the chemo. 
Please do it for me. So you say, yeah, I'll do it for your brother. I'll do it for you. My son was the one saying, Mum, you need to look into cannabis oil. Not kin therapy. But you have to be seen to do the right thing. And cannabis oil is like hippie medicine. So I'm told. And um, so I made these promises to people that really I couldn't keep because I believe that the chemotherapy would, one way or another, kill me before the cancer did. And suddenly, when I started to research about this cannabis world that my son was going on about, then I started to feel a little reason of hope, just a little bit. Because I'd used cannabis a lot and smoked dope for a long time. And I knew that it had health-giving properties. So my partner, who'd been helping me and get through this in England, came back to Spain where our house is, on a mission to find the oil. And he found it. And so I determined to get myself out of this hole, back into the blue and the warm, and take my oil and see what I came out by. And here I am. <laughs> And it's quite quite amazing to hear that sort of moving testimony from from people uh, telling their story and it and, and it making a real impact in their life. So, uh, Joel Coriander, how do you how how do you do you think that that this project is going to develop, and why do you think people should pay attention to it? Well, I think that people are using cannabis oil out there, but again, because of the views around it and people being scared about sort of mentioning to friends and family because even some of these people that we've spoken to that are taking the cannabis oil for their cancer um they've had their family you know saying oh you know don't you're just you're writing your own death certificate sort of thing you know you're not try chemo and stuff like that because it's a traditional method that people know more about uh so it's, it's very difficult and we just want to like i say open people's minds open their eyes and just say, watch these stories and consider, go out there, learn more for yourself because everybody knows someone in their family or a close friend that has had cancer and I think it's, it will touch upon everybody's life. So I think everyone should just look and learn a little bit more and just consider the options that are available out there. And yeah, and the more they're, they're aware of the options, the more they're empowered to make their, their decisions in their life. And it's not always easy to hear the stories of people 
who uh, aren't always able to uh, to share that with the world. Uh, thank you very much, Joel and Coriander, for coming on the Bunker Show this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been brilliant, guys, and you guys are an inspiration. You've changed your lives. You've become active in your own family life. You've moved out there. You've become you know, free from the education system here and you're doing the best you can for your family. And it's awesome to see, as well as all the great work you do. So thank you. Yeah, it's awesome to see, guys. And also, too, I can say, you know, like on the behalf of all of us, I guess, is that, you know, you left behind a lasting legacy and you got a ball rolling that's continued to roll and a lot of it's thanks to you guys. Thanks. Well, we'll always need backup over here. So, you know, anytime. Yeah. You guys are more than welcome. Thank you, and thanks for joining us. And that just about wraps it up for the Bunker Show. You've got the Dark City Cannabis Compassion Club coming straight afterwards. Leslie Reynolds, prominent cannabis activist on the UK cannabis scene.